Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, this is Benjamin Boyce, and welcome to my interview series. Today's guest is simply a woman who grew up in the UK and now is living in Germany. And what happened, what prompted our discussion was that, and I'm saying a woman because I we didn't talk about the proper pseudonym to assign to her, so I'm just going to leave her name blank for the time being. What happened was about a week ago, I made a tweet that was fueled by half a Percocet and probably about three quarters of an old fashioned that was relating my experience with women in intimate relationships and how I said that I have found in my life that my close partners give me the benefit of their emotional intelligence. And I found that I have given the benefit of my, uh, what I called rational or proportional judgment to the females in my life, specifically the close females. And at the end of that tweet, I said that this is just my experience and it wasn't prescriptive of gender roles at all. But that received, as you might imagine, some backlash or feedback and some uh, fury from those who saw me saying that men are rational and women, I guess, aren't because the opposite of rationality is irrationality, which wasn't what I was saying. Anyways, uh, that's a dust up and I'll probably explore that a little bit more. But this woman on Twitter reached out to me and started talking about her experience with emotional men and rational women. And we kind of got into a pleasant, productive discussion about gender and how gender informs our uh, societal relationships and our personal uh, relationship with our own self. And so I wanted to have her on. So this is this is a mother who just put her baby to sleep and joins me for an hour to talk about being a woman and her relationships with men and her relationships with the society. It's more of, I want to qualify that a little bit further. This is more of a kind of a novel, just a, a character study uh, with somebody who doesn't have particular expertise in any of these, you know, academic level uh, views on all this stuff, or just somebody who has lived their life and is sharing that life. And I find that this kind of content serves a specific purpose. It might not be everybody's cup of tea, but that's okay because there are plenty more cups of tea coming your way on this channel. Without further ado, I still don't know what to call her. Here's a woman. Hi. Hello. Hello. I'll just turn you up. How are you? I'm good. This is very surreal, actually. Because... Why is it? (laughs) Just because I've seen you on YouTube. I've watched a lot of the chats that you've had. And it's just like, now I'm talking to the screen and it's replying. It's It's weird. (laughs) Welcome to the uh, Matrix. Yeah, I'm a bit nervous actually. I don't. I don't know if I qualify to be. Here. <laughs> cool. Are you guys new to Berlin? Is that you just moving there? You've been in the no, continent for uh, a while. So we moved here about ten years ago, and um, 
yeah, we came here like for a party and we just stayed. It's like, <laughs> it's that kind of place. Um, I, we were living in Turkey before, so my, my mom was Turkish. Um, we were just there for three months and we came here for like a party and it was such a, it was such an awesome place that like we never left. Uh, so yeah. I'm sorry, I'm really like, <laughs> I'm kind of nervous. I just like, um, um, yeah, uh, I need to come. Well, yeah, you said, uh, you, you mentioned that you don't feel qualified, but I, I'm not qualified either. Like, I have no zero qualifications. I'm just talking and getting in <laughs> trouble. And then, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I suppose so. I suppose he's really qualified to talk about any of the stuff. Like, I mean, I'm not a professional, I'm just an observer. I'm just somebody who is kind of like, interested and I think reasonably deeply about things and um, and I guess I mean everybody's qualified this is everybody's these are everybody's issues I guess we're gonna talk about gender right we can yeah yeah we, we're definitely gonna talk about that I mean so we were talking about the on on Facebook so on Twitter not Facebook I haven't been on Facebook for years um, mm -hmm. on Good Twitter where where so you had this thing where you shared really a personal experience and you got a big kind of backlash for it. Yeah. And I, I would never begrudge other, other women, kind of like, for feeling, sort of, kind of like emotive about that issue. I would say, um, because it is something that has been, you know, like a, a for a long time. You know, you hear it all the time. Like women are so emotional, and men are rational, and and that's kind mm. of the excuse to exclude us from just decision-making and public life and personal time and that kind of stuff. So what is it like being a woman then? What's it like being a woman? That's a really good question. How's um, it done for you? I mean, good it's something time, that I never thought about until I got older. I was a very liberal feminist as a young woman. Um, I didn't realize as a, as like a, when you're young, when you're a child, you don't really think about kind of, you don't really think about things at all. The world comes to you and you just accept it as it is. And you never consider all sorts of stuff. I mean, for example, when you're a young girl child and you're growing up and you're watching TV, um, all of the kids shows, they always have like a whole cast of male characters with lots of different personalities, lots of different kind of, uh, you know, types of appearance. They can be all sorts of different people. And the female character is always basically the same character. She's always super good looking, super smart, you know, the kind of like the one that all the boys like. She's kind of like this impossible female character. And you never notice that as a little girl, like, you know, the Smurfette principle. Have you heard of this? I, I think I have, but why don't you refresh us? Okay, so watch the Smurfs and look at the male-to-female ratio. Yeah. So there's one female Smurf, and she's beautiful, and all the boy Smurfs are, like, have hearts in their eyes when she walks past. And she has no personality other than that she is mm. the one female. Okay, so I've got a daughter now, and when she is reading books or stories, or, or when we're watching like a TV show or whatever. She always says, she finds the girl 
and she says, I am that one, mummy. She always has to identify with one of the characters. She always has to be one of them. Um, and that's how she relates the story. And so sometimes you read a book and there's no girls in it or there's one girl in it and there's loads of male characters. And so you kind of start to see yourself as a small child without realizing. You start to see yourself the way, not really as a whole rounded person. Like if a boy reads a book or, or sees like a film, it's kind of better a little bit, but it's not really. Like in a lot of films now, I watch them and I get so angry because I'm like, this is a kid's film. And all the characters are male. There's like one female character or two female characters and like, you know, hmm. everyone else is male. All these personalities. So you kind of grow up and you sort of just see yourself as a kind of the one female character in this movie for men, you know? Mm. And and so you kind of, you really grow up, you're kind of groomed to only see yourself through the eyes of men. And so when I was like 14, I think, um... I mean, I was a talented student. I always got straight A's. I was thoughtful. I had a lot of hobbies. Um, but when I got to age 14, I developed all sorts of psychological problems, eating disorders, really undiagnosed depression. Um, and my main goal in life was to be slim. And to be attractive. And I didn't really see anything else, any other possibilities for my life other than that. Like, nothing else mattered. And um, because when you're a young girl, you, when you're kind of like a teen girl, you see your primary function as being a sex object. That is what every message in society is telling you. That's your most important role. And, of course, you internalize that. And it completely you- limits potential. Mm-hmm. Could could you give us uh, the cultural context of where you were uh, in, when you were 14? Like, yeah, I grew up in the UK. I grew okay. up in England, in Manchester. And I would say, I mean, especially since living in Germany, uh, the UK is quite a sexist country, for sure. I would be walking down the street as a teenager, 14, 13 years old, and a car would slow down, and a guy would reach out and hit me on the ass, stuff like that. Or... You know, like, just general stuff, like, one of the boys in my class came up once when I was 16, and he whispered in my ear that I was going to get raped, and things like that. Like, there's, like, a lot of stuff that you have to deal with. I mean, I know the boys have to deal with stuff as well. The UK is pretty sexist. Um, There's a lot of these tabloids where there's, like, the sun. They got rid of it now, but page three always had. Page three, yeah. Yeah, and I remember page three, the first time I saw it, I was about seven. Oh. And I was just like, what is this? And I think it was in like um, maybe a waiting room for the dentist or the doctors or something like that. Or maybe even my dad bought it or something like that. Because my dad just, I mean, he's not like a terribly sexist man or anything. He has some old-fashioned attitudes. He's basically quite socially liberal. He never told me I couldn't do anything or whatever it was never like that but i remember him just explaining it away as a bit of fun i still remember actually the woman i remember her name she was sarah jaffa and she was posing behind a bowl of oranges that was like the joke (laughs) 
really, really, um, really kind of like high class stuff. So, so there's a lot of that, and there's a lot of shouting. You know, like there's a lot of people following you home, um, just like bus drivers shouting at you out of their window when you're a schoolgirl wearing your school uniform. Um, and yeah, I only realized how bad it is in the UK when I came here, where guys just don't shout at you at all. Okay, they don't even look at you. When you were 14, you said that you you thought that your your role in society was to be a, a sex object. And so a lot of your attention, I'm assuming, was on your appearance, on your body. Can you uh, talk about, like, at that state in your life, how were you imagining that? Like, what what was the the value of that? Or, like, and how, how did that affect your mannerisms and, and, like, how you build your personality from that? So, I mean... I was also working on kind of like my personality as well because as a child I had been very, uh, I didn't smile a lot, I wasn't at all kind of like an approachable person. I was very much in my own world, I always used to find one best friend, a girl, and then I would like just fall in love with her and I, I would only want to be with her. And then when I got into high school, of course, your hormones start and you take an interest in boys and you want them to be interested in you. Mm. And so I, I came from, I come from a family of kind of like very thoughtful people, (laughs) too thoughtful, anxious, sort of like really overanalyzing stuff. Um, me and my brother are both like that. And we both had this kind of watershed moment at the same sort of age. He's two years older than me. Um, where we realized that if we didn't try to blend in, then we would just have to be kind of on the outside forever. And his choice was to just not try to blend in because he was too frightened of, I guess, it going wrong. And he just felt like he could never fit with this kind of like, you know, um, normal society or popular people or whatever. And I pushed through and really (laughs) had to, had to watch other people to see how they talked to try and do it myself until it became, until it became natural. I was not just seeing myself as the sex, as a sex object or whatever, but it was a huge part of being accepted. I just saw myself from the outside. You know, I didn't see I didn't see my body as a thing for me. It took me until having kids maybe. That um, that was the time when I realized my body is for me. And before that it was always what do other people think of my body? Um what's in it for them? What is like, you know, how can I look good so other people will think, "Wow, she looks good." And it's only been in like the last I would say six years or five years that I really kind of like, I realized that it doesn't matter what my body, what other people think of my body, because most people, your friends don't care what your body's like. Um, and your randoms on the streets, uh, are only going to see you for like, you know, a few seconds. And, you know, my husband is like, you know, very happy, we're very happy together, you know, so I don't have to worry about being perfect or, um, and so, yeah, it took a long time though. You, you're really conditioned to be, um, you know, not just people pleasing in your manner 
and and kind of like the way that you talk to people and the way that you sort of have interactions but also how you look you you think it's so important that other people like what they see um and you become completely consumed by it especially as a teenager i mean that's why like you know this is a lot of like the gender thing with dysphoria and with teen girls getting dysphoria you know i think a lot of them if it had been available to me if this had been a thing when i was 14 i i could see myself doing it because it seems like i think that you know when you have uh, a teen girl with body dysmorphia who wants to diet and wants to i i, I wanted to have i'm quite short i'm five foot I wanted to have my legs lengthened. I researched this leg lengthening <laughs> procedure. Seriously? Yeah, I was so desperate to be, huh. um, to be, to fit more this kind of like you know this this model ideal, okay. because it was just oversold to me. It's on every if you go outside and you look on every poster and billboard everywhere, you will see. You know, from every angle, girls are bombarded with like naked women. You know, women with long legs, like completely unattainable. Um, but you just see it all day long. You see it on the TV, like children's TV presenters, the female ones are always really good looking. They're always really like shapely, really hot. You see it everywhere and you just think, I have to look like that to be accepted. So, um, what, yes. Mm -hmm. How old were you when you uh, discovered feminism? Because you, you said earlier that you were a at some point you were a liberal feminist. I don't know if you would identify as that now. And so, how did you encounter feminism, and what what use was it for you? I to... actually really came really late to feminism. I I didn't kind of like it was a dirty word, you know. When I was growing up, it was a really dirty word. It was like if you're a feminist, you are no fun, and you were um, kind of like a shrill and um, I think what Margaret Thatcher called a strident woman. And this is something that you didn't want to be because men wouldn't like you. So I only came to. I remember seeing it. Do you remember when MySpace was a thing? I remember seeing a couple of girls <laughs> putting feminist in their bio, and I remember thinking, ooh, a feminist. And then kind of being like, actually, why not? Uh, by this time, I'd, I think I was about 21 or 22, or maybe 23. By this time, I'd been in a, quite an abusive relationship, um, and I was starting to see that actually yeah feminism was a very useful thing uh, okay. and then i started to learn more about it and then i lived with a girl who was a self-proclaimed feminist and um yeah and then i realized actually it's very smart to be a feminist if you're a woman living in this world what what was it for you what, what did it give you or uh, tools of analysis or uh, i don't know personal strength or it's hard to remember because in my 20s, I was going out a lot. I was clubbing a lot. I was living a very hedonistic lifestyle. Mm. <laughs> I was working and then on the weekends I was going out. So I I kind of like, I started to really dawn on me that actually like men have treated me in a way that I don't like. Like, you know, um, because you're kind of caught. You're like, you want so desperately to be liked by men because you're groomed to think that you are like this 
female character in like a male story. You're groomed to think that and you're groomed to think, I'm nothing if I can't get male approval. So you just, you feel like you can never upset men. So you're always like trying to please men. And, but on the other hand, then when you get this attention and you're also trying to like dress so that men will find you attractive because you've seen everywhere, that's what makes you worth something. But then when you get the kind of attract, uh, attention that you don't like, you're really kind of unpleasant, predatory, or just dismissive or degrading attention, you kind of you feel to blame because you're like, well, I was looking for this and now I got it, so okay. what, did, what did I expect? So it's kind of like you're put in this complete no-win situation. You know, even from when you're like an early teenager, if you if you don't put on makeup, if you don't make yourself look nice, then everybody ignores you, including the girls. Um, but if you actually do put on makeup and you do look nice, then you get called, you know, names. You get called all sorts of names. It starts really early, the no-win situation. So I kind of like, at that time, though, like the clubbing scene, especially in Scotland, I was in Scotland at that time, it was very much like uh, everybody was there like everybody was out clubbing for the music. They were there for the techno. They weren't there to hook up with people. And it was the rule, you know, you don't give girls a hard time. And I loved it. It was great. You know, people just treat you like a person. It was brilliant. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously sometimes still at after parties, you know, you would get, or especially when I started going to London, then I started to notice that at clubs there, the guys are like, sharks and they're really just waiting for a girl to get so wasted that they can take advantage like the best they can hope for is date rape these guys they hang around nightclubs in london and they circle you and i would always always go out with a big group of friends boys and girls so it was kind of like you know it was much more um the you guys would always take there. care of us we had a safety net it was fine but it was still annoying you know you still just saw these guys and you're like you know i feel bad for whichever girl they're gonna get hold of tonight you know it's hmm. like really kind of so but yeah it was i didn't start to get really into feminism until i was a liberal feminist i was like i don't want it to define me it throughout my 20s and sort of late 20s it was like i don't want feminism to define me i don't want to kind of think too much about it it could make me angry and I don't want that. Um, and so I was a very much liberal feminist. I was like, porn is fine. Prostitution is like, it's not great, but there's nothing we can do about it. So we should just regulate it and, you know, problem solved. Um, and yeah, you know, I didn't think about it a lot really until, well, I mean, like I started to notice it when I got together with my husband um, I remember the first one incident that really stood out was we were in Turkey and you know, like the guys there are, they're always horny, you know, and they're always kind of like, you know, they have this macho culture and we were in a, um, in a restaurant, uh, me and my husband and we were, he was just my boyfriend and he wasn't my husband yet. This was like 10 years ago. And the waiter was really like he was not my type at all he was just really trying to flirt with me and i was just, just sort of smiling and trying to be polite and trying to kind of play it off and just kind of like keep everybody happy because you don't want to just like upset 
the waiter, you don't know if he's going to spit in your food or whatever. You know, I also learned that you don't want to upset men. If they're kind of interested in you, if you upset them, then they can be really aggressive or... In that culture? Yeah. Specifically in, in Turkey or, Any or anywhere? In the UK, okay. you know, okay. as well. Okay. Um, yeah, it doesn't happen here, you know, like, uh, there's a big Turkish population, big Arabic population here. They've absorbed the culture. They don't give you a hard time. Really, they don't, they don't uh, shout at women on the street or they really, they learned, which is why I often think, you know, like, when people say, oh, just like, guys can't help themselves, like, it's cultural, you know, like, people learn the cultural norms, and they abide by them. So, like, uh, anyway, so this, this waiter was kind of flirting with me, and after he left and went to get the food, my husband was like, he was really angry. And I couldn't understand what I'd done, because he felt really that I had been flirting with the waiter and that I was being like coy hmm. and he felt kind of humiliated by that. He felt like I was flirting with another man right in front of him. And he's not a jealous guy or anything. So I couldn't work out. And then I sort of started to realize, I started to examine my own behavior, you know, like when, I, when I was around this waiter and I started to be like, yeah, I can totally see how he would see that. But I had to explain to my husband, like, you have to understand that I'm put in this kind of position multiple times, like, all the time in my life. And I know that, like, on the one hand, I kind of, like, I'm primed to, I'm groomed to want to keep male approval, to not lose it, even if I think the guy is an asshole, even if I'm not interested in him. I can't just be like you. I can't just be blunt and be like, can I swear? <laughs> sure. Can I swear on you? It's okay to swear. Okay. I can't just be like, fuck off. I'm not interested. I just can't do that. I have to be polite to this man. And I have to like get him to go away while still retaining his good opinion. Because okay. this is kind of how I've been conditioned. And then after that, I started to realize, actually, you know, I don't have to. I don't have to be like that. I don't have to. I don't have to be coy. I don't have to be people pleasing. I can, and it really made me. It really made me start to think because I started to think like, I've been put in this impossible situation just because I'm a woman. Like some guy like this comes up here when I'm obviously having dinner with another man, and puts me in this situation where I either have to be a dick to him, or I have to upset my husband by making by being too nice. You know, and it's like, why am I in this situation? What did I do to deserve this? Uh, what I did was I was. A woman in a world which treats women like we have to be you know we have to always put men first and so then after that that I started to really think about the stuff but I'm never allowed to talk about it <laughs> I get too passionate so a lot of people who I know uh, have kind of like said I don't want to talk about feminism with you <laughs> okay. because I get too, I get too kind of like uh, passionate. So I often don't talk about it. I kind of like a lot of it's online um, where I well, talk about what it. What makes you and so I, passionate yeah? about it? Or what do you get passionate about? What What is the, uh, you know, the fiery nugget in the oh. center? Um, it's unfair. It's so unfair. And I think... I think as a as as a, a teenager and a child, I got straight A's all the time, and 
you know, I was good at pretty much everything that I did, you know, academically. And I wonder if my attention had been, if I had been able to focus more on, in my life, on kind of like what I wanted to do and not what other people wanted me to be mm. or what I felt other people expected. I feel like I could have really concentrated my energies more into something, doing something that, um, I don't know. I don't know what I could have achieved. I don't know what, and it made me think, I mean, I have kind of ADHD problems anyway, so who knows, I probably wouldn't have achieved anything or I may not have achieved anything. Um, but I, it just made me think about all the women who are crippled. Like you, you're just emotionally kind of like you're traumatized by growing up in a world that just sees you as like not even a second class citizen, but not a citizen at all. Like a kind of, Mm. um, a prop, you know, you're kind of like, you internalize it and it takes so much of your energy. You know, like I, one of my biggest problems was eating disorders. I had, I have had anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating disorder um, at different times in my life. From age 14 uh, until age, I guess I had my last dalliance with it, but I think at 25, mm. I got bulimia, or 26. Or 27, I think. It was just before I met my husband. So, you know, and that takes up this kind of compulsion and it's just full of self-loathing and it's all about your body. It's also a kind of addiction. It's like a compulsive behavior. But uh, I feel that it really crippled me. I feel it really, really took away a lot of my potential that I couldn't just focus on living because I was always in this internal battle. Okay. Either you have to eat, you're like, I don't want to eat, or you have to stop eating but I can't stop eating, you know, like, hmm. or you have to not throw up, but I want to throw up, you know, like it's, what was, um, what do you think was, you were working out with that? What, how do you think that you, your mind got into that, that loop? Um, I think I inherited a lot of issues from my mother. Uh, she, she was desperate for me to not be fat, um, because she was a fat teenager and, um, you know, often when you try, when parents try to correct something like this, most people have hang-ups about food, especially when they have kids. They're frightened of their child being too thin or too fat, and they try to force the child to do what they think is right, and that actually pushes the child in the other direction. With with food, it's like it's a very sensitive issue. You can really mess up your child's kind of eating by trying to steer them towards certain eating habits or certain foods or and I think she kind of like, she did her best, but I, it backfired, I think. But it was also to do with, um, like, I I was never really fat at all. I've never been fat, but um, I wasn't skinny. I wasn't like a stick. And that was the in-body type. I think it's a bit different now. Like, I think, I don't know. I don't really know because I'm not kind of like... Like, I'm not in kind of, like, teenage social media now, so I don't know what it's like. But I think it's probably thin will always be in. Um, hmm. But it was, it was like, a very important thing in my school to be kind of, like, skinny. And, and I wasn't skinny. I was a bit different. Like, I always had a more muscular kind hmm. of form. 
I was never willowy. I was never one of these children who just ate and ate and ate. And, and I just felt really different. And and I didn't have very high self-esteem. I think that's the other thing. I didn't have very high, high self-esteem. Um, and, you know, I, I had very loving parents. So I feel like a lot of it was societal. I feel like a lot of it was like I had lower self-esteem because I um, had internalized messages about yeah, about what a woman was supposed to be or what a, what a person like me was for in society. And when, so, you, when you were ready to let that go, what allowed you to, to move past that when, when you were 26 or 27? So um, it wasn't even quite when I was 26 or 27. Or 27. It wasn't until I was 31 and I had a baby. Okay. And yeah. <laughs> it's like, it sounds so terrible, but... I suddenly realized how amazing my body was and the things it could do. And I, and I just thought like, I hated pregnancy. I really hated it. I really hated pregnancy. I resented that I had to be the pregnant one <laughs> that, that I couldn't just, that Ryan couldn't do the other one, you know, like that I could have one baby. He could have the other one. I really resented that because I, um, I didn't enjoy being pregnant at all. Not at any point, but, it was still incredible to see what your body can do. The things that your body can do, that a female body can do are amazing. And it was after that that I started to realize your body is for doing stuff. It's not about like, like, and I'm not just saying, I don't mean that a woman can only get kind of self-actualization when she's had a child. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that for me, it was a thing that opened my eyes because I realized that a body, like the functions and processes that happen in a body are so incredible. You know, you have this machine and it's a tool for you to experience the world. It's not for other people. It's And you shouldn't think that it's for other people. You should understand that it is your kind of vessel for exploring the world and doing the things that you like and whether or not there are people find it ideal or perfect or attractive is completely irrelevant. You know, you should uh, see it as primarily for you. And ironically, after I'd used it for another human. <laughs> so that was the thing that really kind of made me feel, okay, yeah, I can just, I don't have to feel bad about myself anymore. I don't have to lose, like, that extra two kilos doesn't matter um and yeah so that was one of the things one of the other things that made me realize that feminism was really important was the abusive relations that i had abusive relationship that i had resulted in abortion and i mean it was the right decision because it was an abusive relationship and he was yeah a very difficult person and it would have been a a terrible idea to tie myself to him forever or to bring up a child with a father who really couldn't be a parent, couldn't be an effective parent. Um, so it was the right decision. And if I didn't do it, I wouldn't have the kids that I've got now who are being raised by parents who love each other, have a solid, healthy relationship with mutual respect and understanding and a dad who is able to, you know, just love them and be around. Um, but I remember being filled with rage for maybe a couple of years after the abortion. And it really shocked 
people actually when I chopped a friend of mine who we were talking about pregnancy and I got so angry that women had to do it and that we had to be the ones who had to deal with the consequences basically when two people are responsible only one person really has to deal with the consequences and um, there's a lot of stigma for that. You get a lot of there. You, you can never kind of get away from the stigma. You're always made to feel bad, even if you know, even if you kind of know that ethically it's the right decision. Um, you're always made to feel bad about it. And I think that was when I became really. Uh, that was when I became a liberal feminist because liberal feminists are at least they support abortion. Another question, what, what kind of sparked our, our discussion now was that I just, I, I spoke about, it was a tweet too, so yeah. nobody really asked me what I was talking about, but I, I tried to just say, in my experience, and I was just having a, a Percocet-fueled uh, evening <laughs> moment, you know, just thinking about my relationships and how I've relied on the emotional intelligence of my partners, and I've, I've seen that 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 the exchange is kind of completed by offering them what I called rationality. And I meant something very specific, just about the way that I would be able to tell a story. They would bring me a problem, then I would be able to tell a story. And I saw that I was giving value to them. So, uh, and and the, the simplistic reading of that was that I'm saying that women are emotional and I'm not emotional. And that's not at all yeah. what I'm saying, actually. I'm saying that I, I, I dr drive a lot of help from the intelligence of women because I don't know how to deal with my emotions because my emotions are so strong. And so yeah. I derive a lot of that. And, and I was trying to make a, it was, it was just an insight and I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of reasons why people ran different directions with that, but you, you started to speak on Twitter and I cannot remember exactly what you were saying, but you said that you've had uh, relationships where the man was more emotional or the the or you were more rational or they were more rational i was just wondering if you want to talk about how your relationships with men have have changed over the years and how you've figured out the person that's complementary towards you yeah. and and being in a pair relationship which is you are relying on each other in a way yeah 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 i'm i'm yeah it's good that we've got back to this actually cuz i've been thinking about it all week and uh, I, I think there's a lot to talk about. Yeah, I think, so the abusive relationship, the guy was a very emotional person. He lived on the edge of his emotions. I mean, he, he never knew, he had, I think, borderline personality disorder. I, I, I knew his family and I knew that he had grown up in this kind of abusive situation. Um, I don't know if he had suffered any physical abuse, but severe emotional neglect and he just didn't know how to manage his emotions he didn't know who he was and at that point i i kind of like i would say that i have a sort of attraction to vulnerability i'm often the sort of person who takes care of people or and it's not actually a healthy mechanism mechanism of mine because when i take care of somebody it's not just that i'm doing it for them i'm doing it for me too because I think I have some issues where I'm taking care of somebody because I I want to be taken care of that way myself. And with my husband, it's not like that at all. It's like we love each other and 
but it's very equal. It's like there's no codependency. I'm not like taking care of him. He wants me. He doesn't need me. He's not kind of like this sort of needy person at all. And I really like that. It's very healthy. Um, but with this ex, it was I was taking care of him pretty much. I was his caretaker, and I would sit and I would listen to all of his delusional ramblings. He had kind of paranoia. I mean, bordering on psychosis. I would say. Um, even when he was kind of feeling good and feeling normal, his mood could switch like that in an instant. He didn't know how he felt about anybody, really. He would idealize me, and then he would demonize me, and mm. it was extremely confusing. And I was the kind of the stable one. And I was the stable one, the rational one, you know, and he would tell me, this person said this thing, and I think it meant something else. And I would say, nobody is thinking about you as much as you're thinking about yourself, you know? And it kind of like, it did feel good to be the sort of rational one, um, but it was also, um, yeah, I mean, you can't actually, you can't rationalize with somebody like that because they just, they just don't hear it. They're only kind of in their own head. And what I really, I've also known other people who are highly emotional, um, men and women, and what seems to, and they're all people who had, um, they had kind of some kind of abuse or very difficult childhood, you know, parental neglect, basically. And so I think this kind of like, what I often notice is um, now I'm now I've got kids, and when I take them to daycare, uh, or we call it kita in Germany. Um, when I see the kids sort of kicking and screaming when they don't get their own way or having these meltdowns, it just reminds me of kind of like my ex and his just total lack of emotional regulation. Like kids really need to learn emotional regulation and they can't if they don't have stable and effective parenting. And so I think like, I think like, you know, people, I don't think you think it actually, I think you know very well that it's not like, it, it just seemed crazy to me that you're being attacked when if you thought that men are rational and women are emotional why would you have so many women coming and talking to you and you know why would you be interested in their opinions if you had this view it was just obviously you don't think that way you know it's a it's an observation and i think it is interesting and i think what it speaks to is hmm. i think men and women you know, I've talked about how women are affected by the way we grow up in this kind of society with all these expectations of how you're supposed to be when you're a boy or a girl. And I think that just, you know, we have both had, men and women have both had their kind of like, their emotions and the way they process them kind of modified by societal expectations. So, um, you know, I think that the idea that men aren't emotional is crazy. You know, anybody who has seen a man punch a wall and or break something when something in his life goes wrong knows that's not a rational response. You know, anybody who reads about like a a mass shooter, they're ninety percent male ninety-eight percent are male. You know, that is not a rational response. That's an emotional response. Anybody who knows about the suicide stats for men, suicide is not rational. I mean, I suppose well, you, <laughs> you kind of like if you if you rationalize, well, I'm going to die anyway. I might as well cut out this like. Mm. <laughs> but you know, it's not it's not a rational response to your problems. Alcoholism is more common amongst men. It's not a rational response to emotions. In fact, the whole point of alcoholism and addictions is 
it's the very fact that you can't handle emotions. The emotions come, you don't know what to do with them. So you drink something or you take something that deadens the emotions. And so I think like, um, I think that the case in your relationships could be, um, I mean, it could be that you're a very rational person and you find that it compliments you to go for somebody who is much more emotional because of course there are kind of like, um, I know women who are extremely kind of like, they're not sort of emotive at all. Um, but it could also be that uh, being with a woman who has kind of high emotional intelligence gives you permission to kind of be more emotional and kind of understand your feelings. As you say, like, I think, I think men are often just, you're, they're taught to suppress and um, taught to, I think the only expo um, the only uh, acceptable emotions that men are often taught they're allowed are anger hmm. and yeah, just anger. Really, I think you know, like well, there's the uh, I I I don't necessarily agree with going too far in the socialization narrative i'm not going to say that it's not exist I, I i know that it's there but i think that there's other factors too i think there's there's there i just want to open it up to other factors it, yeah, yeah what's the use of an emotion like what what can you actually do with it other than than feel it it kind of it, it stops you in your tracks it, you know so so from from a pragmatic pragmatic point of view like what's the use of having an emotion what's the use in in developing an emotional language or an emotional i and I, i'm not I'm not arguing one point or another. I'm just trying to say maybe to some degree for some men, it, it's just it hasn't been that useful to spend a lot of time dealing with that stuff when then they when they could be doing something else. That's all right. Okay. I, I mean, uh, if you think about it, though, you know, we're social animals. Uh, we're the reason humans have thrived is because you know everything we have achieved has been uh, through cooperation. You know, civilizations only happen because people work mm. together. Mm. Um, and if you're a social animal, you need to have emotion. You need to have feelings. Otherwise, mm. you know, otherwise you have a bunch of psychopaths. Everybody, nobody puts anybody else first. You know, you need to have, for example, love serves a purpose. You know, you have the love hormone, the oxytocin hormone. Mm. Um, which bonds, for example, a mother to her baby so that she will take care of the baby. Everything, emotions serve a very important purpose in keeping the species going. You know, mm. if we didn't care about each other, we would live in an unlivable society. You know, there's mm. social cohesion. It's not just because people genuinely are decent. They genuinely do care about other people. And that's very important. That That is something that's enabled humans to thrive. So the idea that humans are, sorry, that the... Um, that emotions are just something that slow you down is just, I mean, it's, well, then, it's then, not then true. Let's mod let me modify, um, again, it's just a flight of fancy. What if the groups or the, uh, the groups that men find themselves in, the projects that they end up doing in groups, um, only rely on a certain bandwidth of emotion. Like there's only so many emotions that are useful for certain projects that a man would do. Let's say a sporting event. And I, I guess we have to 
have infinite caveats now. Uh, I'm not saying that men are particularly into sport. I'm just saying, like, what's a gr- group activity men are into sport, that men would do? Right. Okay. So um, I think we can admit men are into sport. I think that's, I think yeah. that's fine. And then, and then the the emotional spectrum or the emotional bandwidth that women operating in groups or even women operating in relationship to men in in small um, relationships or in intimate relationships might be it might be the case that women I think it's even genetically women see more colors or tend to see uh, the, yeah. right like maybe maybe women have the ability to see. Uh, uh, more more colors than 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 men do, and think, and in order for a man to develop that capacity, it would just it would take uh you know it would just take uh, I guess a certain socialization. Say okay, this is what you're feeling. Let's talk about this. Certain activities that language you know like discussions and and exploration and um you know uh, not trying to solve a problem but just kind of exploring one's you know life story will then allow a man to develop more of that internality. Um, so what's the question? <laughs> I don't <Again>. know. <laughs> I mean, I think like, I, so um, I listened to a podcast. I've started listening to this podcast. It's uh, this woman, Brooke Castillo, and she's this life coach. And she's really cheerful and sunny. And one of the things in the first thing that I listened to her by her, she was saying, everything you do in your life you do because you want to feel a certain way, right? And all of your feelings come from your thoughts. And But the most important thing is like everything you do in your life, you do it because you want to feel a certain way. So when somebody's doing sports, what's the emotion that, uh, that mm. um, kind of drives? Because, I mean, just doing sports, fine. Yeah, people just do sports because sports, sports feel good physically you know you get endorphins all that sort of stuff but when you do competitive sports because it's because you want to win and so you have feelings like that you want you want recognition you want to feel good about yourself these are all emotions you know like the idea that these things are not emotions is just you know okay um so i think men will say something is not emotional when in fact it is you know like so some very rational men developed uh the first nuclear bomb and for them it wasn't just about like uh you know people are not kind of sort of being rational is not an end in itself you want to be rational because you want to achieve something and you want to achieve something because you want to feel a certain way about it so the emotion emotions are always there it's just like maybe i think i think women are just more demonstrative with our emotions or at least we emote more in a kind of like maybe we cry or maybe we get sad or maybe we kind of like um just get kind of like tearful about something or um and because that's what women do it's almost it's always seen as like oh it's not rational but um Mm. Mm-hmm. What's really rational about wanting to win a sports tournament? Who cares? <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. I was gonna, I was gonna try to t- try to turn that over. If if you're yeah. rational for a purpose, are you ever emotional for a purpose? Do you feel something in order to do something? Is there any outcome, or is there talos an, an end to emotion, or is emotion? Uh, like you were saying about the body, which is a wonderful way of saying it, like your body is your vessel, your emotions is just the input that's going on between you and the world. It's just, it's just data. It's phenomenon. You mean emotion is so important for enjoying life, isn't it? Like, 
I, I've been on antidepressants in the past, and the, one mm. of the worst effects was the flatness and the lack of emotion. Mm. Like the, the emotion brings a lot of color to your life, you know. Um, it's like you can't feel kind of euphoric, or you can't feel that. What's the point in being alive mm. if you're just kind of a robot? You know. So, there emotion can be an end in itself. You know, it's definitely uh, mm. it, there's a lot. I mean, it's what makes us human. It's what makes life, I would say, enjoyable. It's not just observing or, yeah, feeling stuff is, is what makes us, what makes life worth living, I would say. How, how have you developed in your relationship to your emotions? Or, like, uh, are, you, are you able to process them more or differently? How, how has that, that journey been for you? Um, I'm much more calm now. I... I would say that, so I went through a stage of being highly emotional, and that was in response to the trauma from the previous relationship. And mm. I would become kind of like, I was, I could be a very difficult person to be around. Um, and What do you I'm mean, like, like a, just <laughs> throwing I, glasses I, or no, demanding no, no, no. certain things? Or? No, no, more like um, when I first got together with my husband, I was very... Uh, I was in a very difficult place and when I look back I'm kind of surprised that he put up with it but he he did and you know here we are um, but I was I could be passive aggressive uh, I could be um, we don't talk about any of this feminism stuff at all me and him we never talk about it because I mean I know he's basically like a decent guy he's got some he's got some internalized you know kind of chauvinistic attitudes too like it's impossible for men to escape that i don't i don't i don't judge guys anymore on that if they're basically decent mm. you know these are things that i would say it's not it's not really a man's fault if he has a kind of preconception um he's grown up with that and it's hard to get rid of as long as he's kind of like treating me with respect and basically decent and if he says something that's off I'll, I'll say yeah what makes you say that or why do you think that way um, mm-hmm. but uh, he yeah so one of the things I was saying was that so he is one of these people who yeah he feels a lot of stuff but um, he's very in control of his emotions he's very kind of like like one of the one of the things that I learned from him was I was always very kind of sentimental about the past, and I hated letting go of old things. And I remember going to his parents' house, and he was telling me about how the minute he moved out, they converted his room into like a guest bedroom and took away all his stuff. And I was like, "Oh, were you sad?" And he's like, "No, it looks much better like this." <laughs> it didn't occur to him to be upset by it. It didn't occur to him to be sentimental about it. He wasn't, he was just like forward, onwards and upwards, new is good, old is old, forget it. <laughs> you know, and that was like, that was a real learning experience for me. And I realized that, yeah, you can, you don't have to be sentimental about the past. You can just be in the moment and be like, mm. cool, I'm doing something new now. And yesterday is gone and it was great cool but it's my past now and um and i don't have to cry about it you know i don't have to be like oh i wish like everything was like it was before i don't have to think like that anymore so that's been something that i learned from him and also generally just to like 
he grew up as the middle child. So he learned when we first got together, I was always getting into debates, especially with his dad. <laughs> or just like at dinner parties or whatever, and just being too strident and like, oh, look, I said strident. Um, I was being too kind of like aggressive, trying to get people always to agree with me or to admit that I was right. What do you think and was behind that? It's partly that I'm my father's daughter because he just can't bear other people having different opinions. But when people pointed out, you're just like your dad in that respect, because I was complaining about my father and I was saying, he just can't stand that someone else would think differently. And I, and they were like, yeah, that's just like you. And then I realized, oh my God, <laughs> this is how I am. And I was just mortified. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that I had never seen it as well. Like. You just don't see things about yourself until somebody points them out. And yeah. Ryan said to me, like, I shouldn't say his name. Anyway, he said to me, you can bleep it. He said to me, like, you know, that he learned from a really early age. Just let people, if they want to, he and my brother would always stay out of these conversations. They would always be like, either with my dad or with, with my husband's dad. And Ryan would always stay out of it. He'd always be like, hmm. there's no point. I'm not going to change anyone's mind here. I'm, I'm not going to get involved. There's no point. And he would always just keep out of it. And I was like, how do you do that? He's like, it doesn't matter what other people think. You're not going to change your mind. Um, and you're definitely not going to do much shouting at them. So just, you know, like he really learned it from being the middle child to just kind of let people get on with it. And just he, he wanted like to just have an easy life. And, and like, I still love to debate. I still love to talk about these issues. I still love to try and convince people, but I also really learned, like, from being on the wrong side of the debate with the gender debate, I learned a lot about what tolerance. What do you mean on the wrong side? Well, I'm, you know, I'm a turf, so. <laughs> okay. so I'm the kind of, like, you know, I'm the wrong side. I think one of the things that really it taught me being on the wrong side was that free speech is super important. And I remember back when I was a lib femme, um, I think when I was a lip fan, but being really enraged by. Do you remember the guy who landed the, they landed a probe on a comet, and the guy was wearing a shirt that had naked women on it, yeah, and I was kind of like I think angry just about that. Yeah, just women, just just like women being sexy, and I was angry about that, and I was joining the kind of like you know, the keyboard mm. warriors. And a guy that I knew said, you have to be careful because that you're not helping the world. Like we're, we're kind of sleepwalking into an illiberal society. And I said, blah, blah, blah. You don't understand. For me, society is already illiberal. I have to put up with all this stuff. Fair enough. But hmm. it's not the solution to, to have this kind of like sort of, um, hysteria every time somebody has a misstep you know it's like it's not the guy didn't really mean any harm and he wasn't really it wasn't really his fault you know like or that he was in this a culture woman sent and it him was that just, shirt. a woman sent him the shirt exactly it was like a gift from a it was a gift from a woman from somebody who probably didn't just like overthink these things or i'm not saying that there isn't merit in discussing why you know, like the over-sexualization of women and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Of course there is, but, yeah. you know, like, just okay. 
do it more constructively. You know, you don't need to attack some poor scientist guy who, like geeky scientist guy who's just wearing a shirt that his friend gave him. You know, like it's it's just it's completely misdirected anger. Like, put your mm. put your put your energy into more constructive ways of dealing with the stuff if you don't like it. You know. Um. Mm. So yeah, and I actually emailed him a few months ago and said oh. you were right. And I'm sorry. <laughs> it was about five years before I think that it had happened. And I was like, you're right. You're absolutely right. And um, we do have to be careful about a liberal society. And free speech is really important. And I understand that now. Um, because if free speech isn't free for everyone, it's not free for anyone. You know, it's it's one of those things that you have to just hold your nose and accept people mm. are going to say things you don't like. And if you want to combat that, you have to kind of, you know, you have to get other people to agree with you. You can't just shut them up or you have to put forward an idea that is logical and coherent and that people will listen to and be convinced by. Otherwise, you know, if you just shut people up, you're, you're losing. So well, we have to wrap up cause I have to, I'm late for work now, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I hope this has been useful. Um, <laughs> No, I, 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 it was either you or somebody else who said that um, that we need to have difficult conversations and we need to allow allow people to express opinions or use words that that are triggering to us. And um, with regards to gender, with regards to you know stereotypes and what I conceive of as archetypes and uh, you know like like there's there's a way that I think about it that's not useful at all that's very poetic there's there's a way that I think about it when I'm just discussing issues I think uh, it, it's a very fruitful set of concepts to be juggling and and deal with but the most important thing that I want to get across is that when I'm dealing with an individual, I'm dealing with the individual first and foremost, yeah. and then their sex, and then their race, and then all these other things. Like if they're a good person, that the the, the most important thing is that I, I'm trying to connect with that that individual, and and mm -hmm. being able to 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 abstract from my personal experience into these patterns that I see about men and women, and and the way that we communicate, the way we deal with emotions, you know, the way that we form groups, the way that we uh, make change happen, you know. Uh, I want that conversation to be more and more open and not closing more and more closed. Yeah. And I don't know how to do that without, you know, stepping on some, you know, toes with regards to saying the wrong thing or making think, kind of generalizations. But I think like when we're having these conversations, it's always going to happen. I think one of the big problems with identity politics and yeah. And this kind of like, Oh, you're a man. So you can't like, it's the kind of death of authentic human mm. communication. If the first thing you see when you talk to someone is that you tick off a list of the things that they are like white or black or male or female. If that's, if that's the first, if that's all that you kind of think about, if you overthink all of that stuff, then you can't just have like, um, you know, you can't have an authentic conversation. And so like, I think it's really important that sometimes you do just be like, all right, cool. I'm a man, but I'm just going to say this and see where it goes because, um, yeah, because you have to be honest and not censor yourself if you want to dig deeper. Can I just tell you something which I've been meaning to tell you, though, um, yeah. which I've been wanting to mention? So with regard to the kind of whole kind of like the idea of whether sort of male sort of 
pattern behavior is socialized or um mm. or biological so i think you know i think there's a good argument that some of it is biological there was like a study of neonates and they had two mobiles and one of them was a mobile which had a face and the other mobile was actually this really creepy mobile it had like all the elements of the face so it was a fair test but just in like a strange arrangement so what didn't look like a face it looked like a thing and the idea was to to kind of extrapolate whether neonates the male and female neonates are more interested in in what is a face or a thing right because this is the idea that women are more interested in people and men are interested in things and there was so there was a lot of overlap so broadly more uh, female babies were interested in the face and more male babies were interested in in things but also was a lot of overlap so a lot of babies were mm. um interested either in both or and had no preference or just not interested in either so there is kind of more in common but i mean i think that does show that there are tendencies there are definitely tendencies i don't think we can argue there are not tendencies towards such behaviors in men and women i mean you you can see it um no, i i would agree that i think we're 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 more similar than different yeah, exactly. There's more in common, which so I think that often the differences between us, it's kind of like a feedback loop. You know, they're amplified by every generation. Hmm. Girls see that girls behave like this, boys see boys behave like this, and it, it's kind of like a constantly, it just goes round and round every time amplified. Self-reinforcing. Okay, yeah. But the other thing that I think is really interesting is, um, I can't remember what kind of monkey it was, but there was like a, I don't know if colony is the right collective, what's the collective for monkeys? Uh, a crew? I don't know. There's got to be a, a crew of monkeys. Okay, <laughs> a team of monkeys, and um, all the dominant males. It was one of these. Uh, it might have been chimps. They were very kind of like where they had very very aggressive dominant males, and mm. the males would always become like that. And I think the dominant males in the in the colony ate some poison meat, and they all died. So then the next generation of male monkeys were raised only by the females and as a result became completely nonviolent and cooperative. And the monkey colony, or <laughs> that's the right collective now, is still around today, I think, and they are still more cooperative. So I think that what, what that shows is that even animals have culture and that that culture can be modified you know, like, I mean, animals are highly adaptable. They can change depending on how they've grown up. So I think, you know, like, I think, yeah, sure, we can't deny that biology has an impact. Um, but I think the differences between us are mm. very much shaped by culture. Okay. I think that um, the innate differences are overstated. And, yeah, and I mm. think that, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So those are my I, thoughts. I, yeah. I just, I, I just always have to resist a, a purely social constructivist view. I, I always like, I, I want it. There's more than just that. I think it's, I, I just, I, I have personal resistance to that. Yeah. Because no, of my I, American I, independence, you know, like, <laughs> damn the collective. Yeah. I do agree. I, I do agree. I think like when you look at any child, like it's fifty percent nurture and it's fifty percent nature, and yeah. Yeah. I don't know what percentages are. I'm not an expert i have no qualifications but i i do agree i don't think we can discount it i just think we shouldn't overstate it that's all yeah 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 all right well, thanks well, for been... joining me yeah thanks for having me <laughs> it's been a good chat
I should probably go to sleep now. It's actually is this your is this your first um is this your first public appearance on a video? Uh, Have you just been tweeting? Yes, and I've just been tweeting. Yeah, I've just been tweeting. Okay. Like, you know, um, I I have no kind of um, desire to be a public figure at all. <laughs> I'm quite happy just being like a just a photo and a and a pseudonym. But yeah, I'm happy to be here and talk to you because I think it's always interesting. So yeah, thank yeah. you. Thanks no problem. For out. You have yeah. a good night. You too. We'll keep in touch. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.